Our scripture reading today comes from John chapter 6, 43 through 69. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then G- The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, And I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the word of the Lord. Right. Um, should start by acknowledging my wife this morning uh, on Father's Day. She said, "Cliff, it's going to be really hot today. You should not wear a long sleeve shirt to church." I said, "Laura, this is Lake Norman. These people are fancy. Nobody wears a golf shirt to church." <laughs> Swing and a miss. Um. Hey, it's Father's Day. I'm Cliff. It's good to be back. I was here for Mother's Day, and I will be here for the bar mitzvahs later. <laughs> um, uh, before Laura and I, and at that time Keller and Asher, moved to, to Charlotte, we lived in a little slice of purgatory called Fredericksburg, Virginia, um, which is a lovely place, but it's on the edge of northern Virginia, which is horrible. 
Um, we moved to Charlotte, uh, feeling like this was, we were coming to the promised land. I grew up in Greensboro, and so North Carolina has always been uh, a seat of romance in my heart. Uh, I'm big on nostalgia, um, and it was uh, fun to, to move here. Um, and uh, there have been many surprises. One of the great surprises is discovering that where we moved was close to uh, the Renaissance Festival. Um, I don't know, are there any huge Renaissance Festival fans here? Anybody love to go to the Renaissance Festival? Does anybody live near the Renaissance Festival and hate the Renaissance Festival every, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, what's crazy is I drove past the Renaissance Festival the first time that I did, not knowing that it was there, and, and my heart jumped out of my chest. Because when I was in high school, I transferred high schools from Northwest Guilford High School to Grimsley Senior High in Greensboro. I went out of district, and the way that I got to go out of district was to sing, I'm not kidding, to sing in an elite Renaissance singing choir. We were called the Madrigal Singers. That is not magical, Madrigal. So any, any music folks out there know, Ben probably might be the only one. Uh, a Madrigal is a Renaissance acapella piece of music. Um, and we were the premier Renaissance Madrigal singing choir in the state of North Carolina. One of the things that made us thus was that uh, we sang in authentic garb. So... Uh, we all had unique costumes that were, that were custom made for us. The men wore tights. Um, we had tunics and uh, fancy hats. And no two costumes were alike. We were like snowflakes. Um, and uh, and it, we were, we were actually really good. Um, I had a cape. It was super fun. It had a hood, like that assassin video game. Um, and, uh, but we would be hired to go and perform at the Renaissance Festival multiple times every fall. Um, and we would be hired out at Christmas to go and carol at people's Christmas parties around Greensboro. And that's how we paid for our spring break trips to Europe, um, to go sing around Europe. And so it was, really, it was really fun. However, it was such an odd experience to get on the bus in Greensboro, North Carolina, and drive down to what I've discovered was Huntersville, um, and show up at the Renaissance Festival. If you've never been, it is quite an experience, all right? So, like, we were there as normal high school kids, normal, wearing tights, and, <laughs> and, we, would, and we would parade around the entire day just singing a cappella songs that we, had, that, we had, um, uh, that we had been practicing for a long time, and, and we would have performance times and everything. And it was one thing for us to be there, but it was another thing entirely to look at the sorts of people who came and really got into the Renaissance Festival. Um, ironically, I, I read in the newspaper this morning in the Independent Tribune uh, that they're holding auditions for the Renaissance Festival right now. Uh, they're going to be the, in the next week at Cannon High School, which is totally off-brand, but um, for both the Cannon and for uh, <laughs> and for the Renfest. Um, but, uh, but we would be singing, and we would watch people pull up, and we would watch the parking lot fill up on these beautiful Carolina autumn days, and you would see these men roll up on motorcycles with girls on the back, and they would kind of have their leather jackets, and then they would walk in to the Renaissance Festival. And you can pay to come to the Renaissance Festival, but if you are a real gangster, you will pay extra and get to dress up as well. 
And so you would come through the gate, and you would kind of turn, and then they had the, the costume rental tent. And so you would watch these big, burly motorcycle men and, and their, their significant others walk in and then come out dressed like we were, parading like this, holding each other's hands for the rest of the day and, and buying turkey, giant turkey legs, uh, which were not organic. And... And, and going and watching jousting happen and these magic shows. And, hear, and it was wild. And look, I mean, I, I get it. I, as an adult, I also like to play make-believe. I have Zillow on my phone. <laughs> like, like it's, it's awesome. So I'm not, I'm not downing make-believe. But as a normal high school kid, when these people that you would watch come in as normal folks, uh, or normal folks, and, and they would, and I'm not kidding, airplanes would fly overhead and everybody in the place would go, Hawk, a dragon! <laughs> and as a high schooler, you're like, what the world? It's like we're all just marching around and we're all going to say together, if we just close our eyes and really believe, we're going to be like, oh, it's real. But we know that we're all just playing make-believe. Wouldn't it be terrible if that was our life as Christians? Just collectively playing make-believe, saying things like, uh, well, you know, it's just, it's a blessing, you know, or like, well, it's, it's hard, but it's good, but it's hard, but it's, it's, but it's good, but it's hard, you know, or, uh, yeah, you know, Jenny's dating this boy, but we're just trusting Jesus with it. Um, I, I believe that in this passage that we're going to look at today, uh, that this is Jesus pressing in in a really hard way, offending our sensibilities in what we hear to point us to a more offensive truth so that we would be real. Because I don't think that Jesus is content uh, with us collectively playing make-believe that this is all real. Like at the end of the, the Peter Pan play, if you've, ever, if you've ever seen it, where you know, Tinkerbell drinks, the, drinks the, the poison and is signified by this flashlight that goes around the room and then goes, and you know, Tinkerbell's dying and her light is you know, pulsing out. And Peter stands up on stage and is like, everyone clap if you believe in fairies. Clap if you believe in fairies. And every, as a kid, you're like, I believe in fairies. That's not what we're supposed to do as Christians. I believe in Jesus. But that it's real. And God would demand that it be real and make us real. That we would be real. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you would inhabit all of these words. Um, God, there is such incredible truth in this passage, um, and there is no way that we have time to plumb the depths of all of it. Um, but Lord, I pray that you would breathe on the dry bones of this sermon, um, that we would all collectively get lost in the reality of who you are, that we would find ourselves uh, moving out of the shadows and into the real. Um, so, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Uh, be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, my accountability partner is one of the pastors at our church. I go to Stonebridge, um, and uh, his name is Soon Pak, um, which is great. Uh, it's a great name. Uh, but this week I was meeting with him uh, and telling him about this sermon. I was like, hey, Soon, I, I already sent in my passage to uh, Angela, and I think I bit off way more than I could chew. Uh, and Soon said, you know, one of my professors uh, told me that when you prepare for a sermon, you're an archaeologist. Um, you're digging up as much as you possibly can, but then when it's actually time to preach, you become a museum curator. Uh, because museums only show like 10% of what they've got, uh, but they show it in such a way that it tells the story that they want to tell. There's 90% of the artifacts are in the warehouse, you know, with Indiana Jones, Holy Grail, and everything. You know, like, um, and so uh, as best as possible, I want to tackle, um, or <laughs> maybe not tackle, brush up against uh, this sermon of Jesus in John 6. And even, in fact, what we read uh, together, which, thank you, great job, um, is, is really just a portion of that. Um, and so for the purposes of this sermon, we're going to pick it up at John 6, 22. Um, this sermon uh, is going to, and, and for the sake of any note-taking that you may do, which is a great compliment to me, um, uh, is going to pivot around verse 60. Um, verse 60, where essentially where it says, uh, this is a hard saying, who can accept it? So the main two sections of this are going to be, number one, uh, what did they hear? And number two, who can accept it? So essentially, what was the saying and, and who can accept it? Um, this sermon uh, is called by Dale Bruner, who wrote uh, essentially the, um, the definitive uh, commentary on the book of John. It is a really big book. Um, and when Laura and I took a class with him when we first came on staff in Young Life, he was writing this, and he said, I'm trying to write the definitive commentary on John, and I pray that I don't die before it's done. Um, so when I saw that it came out, I was going to celebrate the fact that he made it, um, and, uh, and I got it. But he calls this the bread sermon. Um, and Dale Bruner says about the bread sermon, um, he says, Altogether, the bread sermon gives us the most comprehensive picture of the entire Christian faith, particularly the life-sustaining worship service, uh, the life-sustaining worship service of word and sacrament. So if Dale Bruner says that this gives the most comprehensive picture of uh, the Christian life uh, uh, of faith, there is no way we're going to uh, get to the bottom of it here. So uh, for the first section, section one, as in what did they hear, Bruner breaks this into kind of four uh, little mini sections. A is the searching prelude, verses 22 through 24. Then B is the evangelical sermonette, Evangelical Sermonette, verses 25 through 40. Section C, the Ecumenical Sermonette, verses 41 through 51. And D, the Eucharistic Sermonette, verses 52 through 58. And I'm going to tell you that what I really want to get to in this sermon is the disciples' response. But I want to give this part as a background because what they heard was offensive and colors in every way the, uh, the disciples' response. So first, the searching prelude. The people were looking for Jesus. Verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Um, skipping down, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats. They went. When they found him, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? 
The people are searching. You know that, that part in the book of Mark where Jesus has the long night and he like spends the entire night healing people and casting out demons and then he wakes up early the next morning and goes out to have a quiet time? You sh also should have a quiet time. Um, but Jesus goes out to have a quiet time. The disciples are looking for him. They can't find him. When they find him, they say, Jesus, everyone is searching for you. You ever notice how often in the Bible people are searching for Jesus? Truer words were never spoken. Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Jesus loves that people are searching. Bruce Springsteen got it right when he said, everybody's got a hungry heart. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Lay down your money and you play your part. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Uh, in order to understand the bread sermon, we have to understand that we were made to, to be hungry. Like we were made to need God. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, would we still need God? Yes, we would. We were made to be attached to him. Like a car is made to run on gasoline or electricity these days. Uh, our hearts were made to be connected to God. St. Augustine said, our, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Like, we were made for that. And because of that, we look out at an entire world that's searching for Jesus. They may not know that they're searching for Jesus, but we know that that's the answer to every heart's longing. Anybody who's into marketing has figured out how to tap into that searching and that longing. The people were searching for Jesus, which leads us into the evangelical sermonette verses 25 through 40. And I'm just going to give summaries of these for the sake of time. Um, Laura said, don't talk too fast uh, because the first time you were here, you talked too fast. I tried to be Jewish for a year. I learned how to talk fast. My Jewish friends could talk really fast. And we ate bagels. So in the evangelical... <laughs> In the Evangelical Sermonette, verses 25 through 40, uh, I'm not going to go through all of that. I just want to give some quick summaries. If you are playing Reformed Theology Bingo in this passage, you're going to have fun with this. It's a target-rich environment. Essentially, in verses 25 through 40, Jesus rolls out sola fide, solus Christus, sola gratia. He comes through and he says, look, uh, basically, we cannot obtain forgiveness of sin and righteousness before God by our own merits, works, or satisfactions, but that we receive forgiveness of sin and become righteous before God by grace for Christ's sake through faith when we believe that Christ suffered for us and that for our sake, uh, for his sake, our sin is frozen and righteousness and eternal life are given to us. That's how Dale Bruner summed up uh, this part of the passage. Um, you know, they come and they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus is saying to them, you know, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father has set his seal. Um, while, modern, while much of modern apologetics, which is the practice of defending the faith, right, uh, while much of modern apologetics focuses on answering the question of is it true or is that truth defensible, it's been my experience in life that the question that the world is asking these days is not necessarily is it true but does it matter. They're not so much asking is it true uh, as much as is it real. And asking as much is it true but does it make a difference. 
Because if something matters and is real, it will make a difference. Um, I'm going to need some teenagers for this. Uh, how many of you adults have social media? The answer is yes, you all do. Um, you have social media. You, you're probably familiar with Facebook, right? Um, or mom book, as, as it became. Um, Instagram, Twitter, it's where you get your news and your fake news. Uh, in use right now, what is, what is kind of the most prevalent social media uh, right now that kids use? Uh, a hint, it's the name of my sermon. Be real. Be real, yeah. Um, does anybody, could anybody here explain to the adults in the room what be real is and how it works? Anybody know? I need help. I'm looking at you. Yes, young man. <laughs> it's like um, you send a picture every day, and it's like supposed to be anti-social media. So it's like a picture every day, and then everyone sends a picture, and only the people that you follow, and every time the notification pops up, it says, time to be real, and then you stop what you're doing, and then like do, like, you like post a picture of like what you're doing that moment. So you're being real, not like, like, yeah, not filtered. Boom. Hey, what happens if you don't uh, respond and you don't send the picture back within a certain amount of minutes? I think it's it shows like posted late or something, and then yeah, it says posted late, and then you're not being real, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So thank you. Uh, very good. Um, yeah, be real is is uh, tapping into this desire for authenticity, where it's that basically this world of people who use these things, which will be you too soon, um, is saying we're tired of these like set up multiple, I mean like how many of us have ever been in a beautiful place and there's some girl whose boyfriend is taking pictures and she's just going like this and like no, no, take it again, like this and like, and it's just again and again and you're like can I walk behind you now at the beach? Um, people are basically saying like we're tired of that, we're tired of this set up deal like we want something that's real and so there's an entire scoring system on this new app that says like you just have to take a picture of whatever you're doing at that time because it's time to be real as it was so eloquently explained for us um there is this need for people to be real uh so that we what we experience that we know uh is actually real jesus is saying like yes your hunger is real and i am the food and I am, and I am it. And in, in this portion of the sermon, Jesus responds clearly saying, I'm what you're looking for. This is the evangelical proposition of this sermonette. Is that yes, you are hungry, and yes, I am the food that you're looking for. Which moves us into uh, the ecumenical sermonette. Those are big words. And for the sake of time, I'm going to grossly oversimplify this part of the passage by saying that Jesus is answering two questions. Essentially, one, how can you know slash who is the one? And the second question, how can one be slash who can be a part of him? Dale Bruner says about this sermonette, Jesus answers their how question not defensively by explaining how he came down from heaven, but confidently and even offensively 
uh, or offensively by asserting that the Father will bring whomever he wants to a conviction of his heaven-sentness in the Father's own time and way. Jesus does not defend himself by apologetics in order to get people to believe him. He asserts his confidence that no one can ever believe him at all unless his Father first draws that person to himself. Election! Ding, ding, ding. Um, the, uh, in short, Jesus saying about how the church is formed is saying that salvation, both objectively, who does the saving, and subjectively, who comes to it, is a divine gift. And the church is both formed and filled by the action of God and not man. Now, this is where this sermon starts to be offensive, now, it's going to reach its climax in the whole eat my, eat my flesh, drink my blood thing um, that he's going to say. But, uh, but it starts in this. It's a, it is offensive to say that there is this God out there who has made you and designed you and that you can't come to him unless he calls you. You can't come to him unless he calls you. My entire life, I've grown up with a Christianity uh, that is very much geared towards outsiders. Like, we want our churches to be places where, where people who don't know the love of Jesus can come. And that is a really good thing. We have to figure out ways to keep the doors of our church open. However, like, if we're trying to square the really, these hard words of Jesus with Hmm, don't step in it. If we're trying to square these words of Jesus um, with what I feel like has been an overemphasis on evangelism in my lifetime, it's not going to work. Now, one might say, well, how can you overemphasize evangelism? Well, if we make the words of God and the blessings of God for not the people of God, it starts to feel out of whack. We have to remember that these great and precious promises are for us. That when Jesus says no one can come to the Father unless he's been called by the Father, we might like to think about like our neighbor who doesn't believe and that's where our mind first goes. Why doesn't your mind first go to the fact that you're called? He chose you. Like he, he picked you. These are great and precious promises that are for the people of God. And it might sound really haughty to say that because we have non-believing friends. We have non-believing family members that we want so badly to know Christ. But Jesus died for the church. Not this church exclusively, but his people on earth. And these promises are for us. If we were playing pickup basketball and LeBron James picked me for his team, I would spend, and maybe you're better than I am, but I doubt it. <laughs> I would spend the entire game not thinking, oh man, it's so unfair he didn't pick that person. No, I'd be like, hey, does everybody see whose team I'm on? <laughs> the king, <laughs> I'm on his team. Bron, pass. <laughs> you know, like, we have, got, we have got to sit in the joy of the fact that we have been chosen. We've got to sit in the joy of that and to know that as he's been good to choose us, 
he will be good to choose others. And that no one comes to him unless they're called. This is how he forms his church. And so absolutely, we need to have this heart for evangelism. But one of the reasons I love our denomination is that we refuse to let that be the tail that wags the dog. We are going to build up the body of believers. And like I, my, my nine to five job is to run an organization that exists to introduce lost people to Jesus Christ and help them grow in their faith and become Christian leaders through the tool of soccer. Like that's what I do with my time. But man, I, I want my church to be about the, the people of God tasting the goodness of God so that as um, Derek Webb wrote uh, before he kind of went off the deep end, may the bread on your tongue leave a trail of crumbs to lead the hungry back to the place that you're from. So take to the world. That's how Jesus forms his church, by calling people to himself. These are promises for us. So instead of thinking about, well, how is the unbelieving world ever going to wrap their minds around this? We need to first think, how are we going to wrap our lives around this? Which leads us to the Eucharistic sermon, or sermonette, verses 52 through 58. And this is where it really gets real. Jesus starts talking very plainly, saying, you must eat my flesh, you must drink my blood. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Y'all, that's for you. We've talked about that before. That's for you. But I love this. Jesus wants not only to talk to us, but to touch us. Not just to speak to our hearts and minds, but in this place to reach to our bodies. In this Eucharistic turn, Jesus takes our experience of him from only our souls to our bodies. Jesus wants us to know how he is going to relate to us, how he must relate to us. And y'all, you got to love it. Even in this time where, like, yeah, when Jesus says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, okay, that sounds weird. Okay, let's just all, that, yes, that sounds strange. But in this place, Jesus is actually trying to make himself more clear to us. All right? Like, do you think that the God who did all of this amazing creation and then stepped down into it, who's covenanted with himself to be faithful to his people and then entered the story, incarnate God to walk among us, is okay with us coming to a place where we're just going to be like, ah, I don't know, it's just kind of a mystery. Like, and I'm, in no way am I trying to remove atonement, which is the j crown jewel of our theology, from anything. But I do want to say, like, if Jesus' only task was to be a propitiation for our sins, he could have done that at any point in his life. The reason he stuck around for so long is to make himself clear to us so we could see him, so we could touch him. He was just as perfect for his entire life, and his sacrifice would have, would have, would have been effective. He stuck around to make himself plain to us. So that later Peter and John and those guys could say, yeah, the, we have seen it. We've touched it, the life. We've touched it. 
And that is what we proclaim to you now. Atonement is the crown jewel. But Jesus did do more than that in his life. He wants us to know. It's not, it's not like... It's not like if you really loved somebody, you would write it on a note, fold it up, stick it in a book, and then go hide the book in the library, find the person, and be like, hey, the truth about our relationship is in there. Go find it. But a lot of times we think that the truth about God is, is that way, that we've just got to really just got to search for it, you know? Jesus is making himself plain. So I love that in this most offensive teaching, he's not trying to make the concept of salvation harder, but easier, He's making it less ethereal and more tactile. I mean, think about it. God wants us to get it. Uh, in seminary class, I took a per, I, I, uh, in a seminary class I took, a professor walked us through like this. Like, he said, think about, think about food, right? He's like, in the world, food is always a problem. In developing nations, there's not enough of it. In developed nations, there's too much of it. Like, so for us in this room, like, it's not a, pr our problem with food isn't that there isn't enough, it's that we have too much of it, right? How many of your New Year's resolutions was to eat more? You know, like, you're probably not, you're probably not actively trying to, to eat more hamburgers right now, you know? In fact, we're trying to wean ourselves off of so much. Um, food is a problem. No matter where he goes, Jesus says, I'm, I'm the real food. Stop letting it be a problem. He, he says, um, Think about what happens around food in the Bible. You know, how many, how many feasts point to God? How many covenants were made around food that even the sacrificial system involved food? Like the Passover involved food. That, um, that the book of Acts, the growth of the church, happened around the, the breaking of bread and the being together around food. And then he said, think about what food does for you. Last week, my boys were in soccer camp, and every day at the end of soccer camp, they descended on our home like, a, like locusts. Seriously. I mean, we need a Costco around here. Um, Mooresville's too far for where I live. But you know, like, you know what my boys didn't do? Like, the whole ride home from Matthew Sportsplex, they'd be like, Dad, we're so hungry. Dad, we're so hungry. Dad, we're so hungry. And you know what they didn't do? They didn't run into the house, make a peanut butter and jelly, and then lift up their shirt and smear it on their stomach. Right? Although the whole way, they'd be like, Dad, I'm so hungry, my stomach hurts. Dad, my tummy is grumbling. Well, yeah, because food doesn't come from this, you don't put it on your skin. Food has to go down inside of you. Food powers you from the inside out. Food is the, the gas injection into uh, the piston shafts, which ignites, that makes the things go up, up and down, which makes the engine turn, which connects to the drive shaft, which connects to the wheels. Like, it comes from the inside out. Jesus is saying, you must eat me. You must drink me. I have to be down inside of you. Because you, ha you don't take the food and put it on where you're hungry. You take it, you put it in your mouth. My, my sons understand this. There's a lot of things they don't understand. They understand that much. Um, and that we are dependent on that. That the meal is something we're dependent on. Of putting food into our bodies. It's Jesus saying we need to do. So what did they hear? Well, they heard that a doctrine of salvation that is wholly non-dependent on the individual and wholly dependent on Jesus. 
They heard a doctrine of sanctification that is wholly non-dependent on the individual and wholly dependent on Jesus. Literally, in answer to their question, what must we be doing to do the work that leads to eternal life? Jesus says, believe in me. And in case you don't, in case believe in me is too ethereal, you've got to eat me. I've got to be inside of you. I've got to be powering you from the inside out. My summary of these sermonettes and lessons is this, simply that Jesus is telling the crowd and all of us what he must be for us and what he must do for us. What he must be for us. Don't forget that when you read this book, this, I really enjoy reading John Piper, really, really enjoy reading Tim Keller, but those are men's ideas about what God is like. A Bethmore Bible study is a, is a person's explanation of what God is like, no matter how gifted they are. This is not a person's explanation of what God is like. This is Jesus' telling us what he is like, straight from the source. He's not saying like, hey, you know, I really should be like food to you. I really should nourish you. I mean, you can make this Christian life work if you want to, but it's going to work better if I... No, he's saying, I must be this for you. There is not another option. And so section two is going to be a fraction of the length, but I hope uh, an exponential uh, bit of the uh, importance. Who can accept it? Just two parts. One, do you take offense at this? Are you going to leave two? And two, are you wholly abandoned to God? So, Jesus does this, and a group of disciples, unnamed folks, decide that they're going to leave. Jesus says, uh, Jesus says to the twelve, are you going to leave too? Kind of an interesting thing, in the book of John, this is the only time recorded that Jesus speaks directly to the twelve. Apparently for John, he didn't consider the pullicides all that important. Maybe it's because he was the beloved and he was constantly having a pull aside with Jesus. I don't know. But this is the one time is to ask them if they're going to leave too. The crowd of other unnamed disciples that leaves, this is really interesting to me. They've seen Jesus do miracles. They've heard him teach. Do you think they didn't make their mind up about who he was? Do you think that that group of disciples was, had not, you know, understood who he was. Um, they would have had their minds made up about who Jesus is, but it's at this point that it's exposed that they have obviously not made their minds up about what Jesus must be for them. Jesus is saying, I am your total dependency. I am your complete dependency. I am your only satisfaction. I'm it. And this drives some people away. You know, we're always trying to be independent. This week, my three-year-old started coming out in the morning and going, it's, you know, seven in the morning and going, I got myself up. <laughs> Sweet Moses. <laughs> Like, we're in for it. But from as early as we possibly can, we are trying to be self-dependent. 
Jesus is saying that has no business in there. We have to be completely dependent on him. Like food. You can't decide that you're not going to eat food and still live. And Jesus looks and says, are you going to leave too? You know? And then, uh, and then Simon speaks up. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. To which Jesus said, have I not chosen you? To whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. At this point, you might think, Cliff, you've given us no practical application. I haven't. But here it is. This is what I think set the 12 apart from the disciples that left. Is that when Peter says, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. He's saying, we have been eating of your flesh and drinking of your blood. I don't understand it, but we have been. And because of that, I can't go anywhere else. Because as Psalm 34 says, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I have tasted, I have experienced it. And I don't even need to ask it. I'm telling you, have too. You have too. That God has been so faithful to you in your life. Through the deepest, darkest valley, he has been faithful to you. And you have felt him in it. Even if he didn't get you out of it, he gave you just enough so that you knew he was with you. That you maybe didn't taste deliverance from it, but you tasted presence. You tasted peace in the midst of it. Through the deepest, darkest valley that you could have walked through in your life. Or from the highest joys that you have had as a human being. That he has been with you. You have felt it. You have tasted. You have seen. You have experienced it. When you look at the Old Testament, God is always saying to his folks, why have you forgotten the experiences we've had together? Y'all, it is one thing to know who God is. It's another thing entirely to know what he is for you. Bread and drink. So I'd ask you right now, like, are you resisting needing him? At some place in your life you are. Because tomorrow's reminders of his faithfulness are going to be the events of today. Are you resisting needing him in suffering? Are you resisting needing him by always playing it safe? By saying, I'd love to see God show up, but I'm going to draw this circle around my feet, and I'm going to stay right here. I'm not going to risk. I'm not going to... I'm not going to walk over there and when I feel like God's telling me to tell somebody about him, I'm not going to do it. Like I'm, I'm resisting these moments where I'm going to see him show up, where I'm going to experience him outside of this safety because I'm just going to stay right here where I can. You know, that's a way of resisting God. Are you resisting needing him by seeking your own satisfaction and happy hobbies or comforts? Ah, oh, man, I want to feel God, but I also want to drink three beers a night. Like, I don't, want, I don't want to have the quiet moments before I go to bed. I don't want to deal with the day. I want to check out. I want to watch, I want to watch sports. Sports? 
I want to watch sports. Do you know how you know? When I suggest that you should fast from those things for a little bit, you're like, eh, I don't want to do that. Do you resist needing him by staying busy? Because as long as, as long as you can keep sweeping so much that there's a dust cloud that goes up around your life, you don't have to actually look outside of it. I'm so busy. God, just meet me in this busyness. You're resisting needing him by staying busy. Do you resist needing him by needing to, by being important? In the absence of doing all those things, you just might find that he is the one who has been feeding you all along. That like my kids, an hour before dinner time, they run to the pantry and look for graham crackers and goldfish. And it's like, we're making protein for you. Maybe in the absence of, of snacking on what this world has to offer, you might realize that the deeper hunger that you've just been masking over is actually met. Just in closing, uh, I've got a really good longtime friend named Cam who 55 days ago found out that his daughter had a brain tumor. She's six years old. Um, and, uh, and on the day that you go in, he said, uh, he realized that she was losing the strength on the right side of her body. Um, and so they're like, that's kind of weird. They took her in. It's, and the doctor said, what you really don't want to hear, we've got to get you over, we've got to get you over to the, to the hospital immediately. We've got to get an MRI. So they stick her in the machine. Carson's her name. They stick Carson in the machine. They look, they come back, and they say, there's a brain tumor. We don't know anything about it, but it is deep in the middle of her brain. And like, that's the rock bottom. And, you know, three brain surgeries later and, and, cr and many prayers answered, like, last week, Carson, like, walked down to the beach in Charleston where they live with her dad and got into the water. But there was a long rehab stint in Charlotte, and I got to get pancakes with Cam at the original pancake house. They live in Charleston now. They, they were up here. And I had to know. I said, Cam, is there a part of this time where you lost your faith? Where you felt like pressed up against it, like, you know, that, or ha have you? Like, are you st where are you at? And Cam wrestled for Ohio State, so he's like, he has some emotions, but, but he's pretty straightforward. And this is what he said. He was like, yeah, you know, on the day that they told us that there was a, a brain tumor and that, that they didn't know anything about it, the first thought you think of is, my daughter's going to die. And so he said, I, I got alone, and I walked out into a waiting room, and I put my head in my hands and I thought to myself, this is Cam talking, he says, I thought to myself, this is the moment. This is where it happens. This is where, this is where you walk away from the idea of a good God. And he said, he kind of sat down in that idea, and he was like, wait a second. So my alternative is I'm going to believe that it's a random world where, where this universe thing just happened to my daughter and there's no cause for it and there's no hope for it. That's my alternative. Direct quote, yeah, that's stupid. <laughs> what Cam was saying is that like, in this deep, dark moment, I have tasted and seen that God is good too many times. Where else would I go? Where else would I go? Yeah, the alternative is stupid. Let Jesus be the bread that fills you. Let him be the wine that brings you joy. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Every other option is stupid, as Cam said.
Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Um, Please help us to love you more. Um, God, you are perfect and we are not. Um, But God, thank you that by your power and by your goodness, uh, you want to make us like you. Um, So God, I pray that you would give us the grace to stop resisting our need for you um, and that we would run to it and that we would find uh, evidence of your goodness all over our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.